Welcome to another Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind ASCO special. Today we will be talking about the first artificial intelligence, or well, intelligence one knows, and that is the brain and brain cancers. That was a terrible segue, but I'll hand you can it tell that You can tell that Josh has been uh, experimenting with chat GPZ. I did That's how he it. writes most of his intros and most of his jokes. Ironically, I did put something into chat GPT yesterday and the, its first point was exactly the one I had, which is a little scary. But more interesting today is looking at PD-1 inhibition in GBMs. Michael, do you want to take us away? Absolutely. And incidentally, Josh has just let slip that he is, in fact, a robot. In the CNS uh, oral abstract session, there was a lot of really, really interesting stuff. So this is going to be an interesting and much more scientific as opposed to clinical episode than perhaps you, our listeners, are used to. But in the GBM space, we're probably going to go through the same points over and over again in that it is a horrible disease with high rates of recurrence and a very, very limited outlook. The median overall survival for patients with GBM from the time of diagnosis is about 12 months. So it really is one of the worst cancers to be diagnosed with. And every oncologist will have in their mind a handful of patients who are afflicted with this disease at a tragically young age. The first study is a study investigating the use of PD-1 inhibition and GITR, which is the glucocorticoid-induced TNFR-related receptor, in an in combination with stereotactic radiotherapy in recurrent GBM. So a little bit of background, because I guarantee that most people have not heard of the GITR. Basically, we know that GBM is what we term an immunologically cold tumour. There have been lots of studies about checkpoint inhibition use in GBMs, and they have all been disappointing. This is due to a low infiltration of T-cells and therefore a overall immunosuppressive environment in the primary tumour, very much not amenable to treatment with immune checkpoint inhibition. And so therefore it's a major scientific focus to try and sensitise these GBMs, turning them from cold tumours to hot And the hypothesis of this particular study was that stereotactic radiotherapy, fractionated stereotactic radiotherapy that is, has immunostimulatory effects that can potentially flick the switch from cold to hot and therefore sensitize them to immune checkpoint inhibition. A a few notes on the GITR, the GITR receptor, is an immune checkpoint that is expressed in regulatory T-cells or Tregs. Activation of GITA leads to depletion and reduced immunosuppressive function of Tregs that increases proliferation and enhanced function of CD4 and CD8 effector T-cells. GITA is one of several areas of study that are currently being investigated in the oncology space. There are a lot of studies investigating interleukins and stimulation of that, but this is probably the next phase of immunotherapy is not just blocking the receptors, but seeing if in combination with existing checkpoint inhibitors that we can find other receptors to increase the immunogenicity of certain types of cancer. So this is a very small phase two study with only 32 patients divided into two cohorts. Cohort A was a single arm primary non-surgical cohort. So these are patients who 
were, as the name suggests, not for surgery, and patients had to have tumours between 1 to 4 centimetres. Cohort B was a two-arm, non-randomised, neoadjuvant arm for patients undergoing surgical tumour resection, and a reminder that this is for patients who have had a recurrence after standard of care STUP, so chemoradiotherapy and adjuvant chemotherapy with temozolomide. The treatment was four weekly cycles using using the PD-1 inhibitor, retifanlimab, I didn't practice that one, a novel anti-PD-1 inhibitor, the GITA agonist, which has the very catchy name of INCAGN01876. I'm sure if it comes to sort of wide use, they'll come up with something much more marketable. And fractionated stereotactic radiotherapy of 24 grays in three fractions at a rate of eight grays per fraction. The primary endpoint was overall response rate in cohort A per modified RANO. RANO, for those who don't know, is the resist equivalent used in primary brain cancers using MRI instead of CT and using the various windows available for MRI, T1, T2, flare, DWI, to basically achieve the same thing that resist does. But we know that staging primary brain tumors with CTs is an inexact science at best. Secondary objectives were the safety and tolerability of the treatment, as well as PFS and OS of each cohort. Exploratory objectives were systemic and tumor microenvironment immune effects, and comparing the PFS and OS in the surgical and neoadjuvant arm in patients who are treated with or without radiotherapy. So in terms of efficacy, let's start with that, because it is interesting. Now, in the main cohort, the non-surgical cohort, cohort 1, there was no benefit at all, very disappointingly. Zero out of 16 patients achieved a radiological response per uh, modified RANO, which is an overall response rate of, wait for it, 0%. Nine out of 16 patients had a best response of stable disease. So you're really not looking at very good outcomes. And when they looked at the PFS and overall survival, they were very much in keeping with just standard of care treatment. So not improving things significantly. Cohort B, however, this is where things get interesting. So remember, cohort B, and this was further divided into patients who did or did not receive radiotherapy. So in cohort B1, patients had radiotherapy plus the PD-1 and GITA agonist. In cohort B2, they just had the PD-1 and GITA agonist. So in terms of PFS, the progression-free survival, and Josh, remember this is in patients who have recurred after first-line therapy, the PFS was 11.7 versus two months across the two subarms of cohort B. So that radiotherapy is clearly doing something. In terms of the overall survival, 20 months versus 9.4. So probably in addition to the 8 to 12 months that you're getting from Stupp, you're now in this subset of patients increasing it potentially to close to three years, which for GBM is just a quantum leap forward. They did a couple of other interesting scientific things that I don't even pretend to understand fully, but they did note that there was a significant elevation in cytokine levels, and they had a full, I think it was like a 90 gene panel or something, Um, but they noted that there was an elevation in the radiotherapy cohort, first noted at C2, this is in the tumor microenvironment, and sustained through to cycle three. It was similar elevation in the uh, pure neoadjuvant without radiotherapy uh, cohort, but this was not sustained. In terms of toxicity, this is the flip side though. 
there were significant rates of grade three to four cerebral edema at 34%, 11 out of 32 patients. This is across the whole patient cohort. Fatigue was noted in five out of 32 patients, 16%, and cognitive disturbance was noted in four patients or 12.5%. There were relatively high grades of immune-mediated rash, diarrhea, and low rates of hematological toxicities, immune thrombocytopenia was noted, um, as well as liver derangement. So the takeaway from this fascinating study is that there was a significant increase in the PFS and OS in patients receiving neoadjuvant immune checkpoint inhibitor plus GITA agonist plus fractionated stereotactic radiotherapy. However, there were small numbers, and it's important to note that this was not the primary endpoint. The study actually didn't reach its primary endpoint, which, if you remember, was the non-surgical group. And this is where, in the subsequent discussion panel, one of the main questions arose, which was a bit of selection bias. There was a potential for a bit of selection bias. The patients in cohort in cohort one who were not receiving surgery are probably more illustrative of your standard recurrent GBM patient. A very small number of patients with the recurrent GBM are amenable to surgery. It's not something that I've ever seen. Obviously, it is center-dependent, dependent on neurosurgical uh, confidence and what have you. But there is evidence that patients who have disease, recurrent disease that is amenable to resection, tend to do better because they tend to be younger, they tend to be fitter, and the location of disease is not yet affecting their performance status. And so they are more likely to tolerate major events like surgery. So while the benefit is significant numerically in the um, patients who are suitable for resection, It is important to temper our enthusiasm for those results because it might not be as broadly applicable as we hope. It's interesting. It's really interesting. It's a really interesting study. Because I want to believe, I want to believe that this combination therapy will have a good outcome for our patients, but is it just a bias that they've undergone resection and because of that you've got an overall on PFS rather than the actual treatment itself? Well, we don't know. I mean, the... But the cell biology, the tumor microenvironment is suggestive. The hypothesis is suggestive. But the honest answer is we don't know. I want to believe. So. Like the X-Files. I'll just call you Agent. (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to say, I'll just call you Agent Mulder. That's it. Um, You can be Scully. Um, I'll be Gillian Anderson. I will take that. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, actually probably the better option of the two. Um, (laughs) All right. we We might move on, but a really interesting conversation point and also hopefully you know, a spark to more research and better outcomes. But the next trial is a vaccine trial, which is another novel way of treating cancers. It's an anti-telomerase vaccine. Elevator pitch. There doesn't need to be one. This is GBM. We're anything, if it's going to work, we're going to jump at it. The immediate overall survival is that for GBMs is 12 months. I remember doing a retrospective analysis at a prior hospital I think this might have been with you, Michael, but it essentially showed that out of the 200 patients we looked, surviving beyond 12 months was pretty pretty low. What we do know is unmethylated MGMT, not the band, has poorer prognosis and reduced expected response to temozolomide, which is the standard of care, has been the standard of care for many years, and isn't that great. It does something, but it's not, not fantastic. You could summarize the entire treatment of GBM as not that great, Josh. Yeah, I know. Um, It's something. And you've got UCP2 and 4, which play a vital role in regulating 
mitochondrial membrane potential preventing ROS, random oxygen species production, alteration in neuronal activity and regulation of calcium homeostatus that ultimately results in prevention of neuronal loss. So there's a high incidence of TERT promoter mutations in GBM and and this is not expressed in normal brain tissue. So this is a phase two study of the UCP vaccine. So it's a vaccine against UCP2, UCP4, 2CD4 helper peptides derived from TERT proteins, which is telomerase. They were enrolled patients one month post temozolomide and radiotherapy. So this was part one of Strup, not part two. Instead, they received six vaccines. They won 8, 15, 29, 36, 43, followed by vaccines every two months for a year and tumor elevation every eight weeks. So the primary endpoint was TERT-specific CD4 T-cell response in the peripheral blood, and the secondary endpoints were safety, OS, and PFS. Remember, this is a relatively early study, so this is acceptable. 31 patients, majority had either partial or complete resection and were good performance status, so a KPS, so Konofsky performance score of 90 to 100% of about 25 of them. Only five patients had baseline steroid use at time of inclusion. There was no dose-limiting toxicities, Main adverse events, local skin reactions. Interesting you say that, Michael. I'm currently trialing a vaccine for triple negative breast cancer in the adjuvant setting, and that's exactly what I've seen. Quite localized reactions. It does get better, and there's ways to manage that. Primary endpoints, so T-cell response against TERT was noted in 27 out of 30 patients, so 90%. Median progression-free survival was 8.9 months, and median overall survival was 17 Point nine months. Potentially promising. Development of other epitopes on Elispot assay after vaccine. So the epitopes include, there's a whole host of them. So Chai 393L2, KRAS, BCAN, Elovil 2, and epitope spreading appeared to improve survival with a p-value of 0.026. Are you confused? It's a lot of basic sciences here, but what we can see is that our primary endpoint was seeing if the T cells would act against the TERT promoter, which you see in GBMs. The answer is yes, which is great. So the vaccine might have a way of directing our immune system to attack the cancer cells. Interesting survival signals in the unmethylated MGMT GBM patients, which is the poorer outcome cohort of patients that we know about. And further studies with TMZ and NDPD1 is in development and ongoing. There are some questions here, Michael, that I think we might briefly talk about. Is that TERT is not a mutant protein? Yeah, absolutely. These questions were raised in the panel discussion, and I think they do. I think it is the job of the panel in these sorts of studies to play the role of the wet blanket in some cases. So we have these amazing scientific principles that have great numbers and we think, yeah, this should work. This is going to be the next thing. And the panelists sort of come and say, well, yes, but we have these questions, which is not good for enthusiasm, but is important in terms of uh, uh, reining in the the over-enthusiastic members of the audience, myself included. The yes, but no, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's the yes, but no, exactly. So TERT is not necessarily a mutant protein. The UCP uh, mutations are frequently seen in pathological tissue, as Josh said. 
they are not necessarily expressed in, in normal brain tissue. However, there is a concern about if the immune system becomes directed against the TERT in its non-mutated form, whether this will lead to autoimmune problems. Wasn't seen in this study, but again, it's a very small study with very small numbers, and so it might be a signal that comes to the fore in later studies, as Josh mentioned, that are combining uh, UCPVAX with temozolomide and anti-PD-1. There's also the flip side, which is within GBMs, if there is heterogeneity, we know that GBMs just in general are very heterogeneous diseases, and that's probably a reason why it's been hard to nail down a treatment that will work for the majority of people. And so the question of whether the UCPVAX will be efficacious against multiple different epitopes, multiple different types of TERT expression. So these could be normal variants, which could cause autoimmunity, and they could also lead to a, a method for the cancer to escape the UCPVAX. So the question of whether efficacy will transfer across the different epitopes is something that needs to be answered in larger studies. The other question is about this epitope development, which Josh mentioned on the um, Ellie Spot assay. The question about this is because, again, GBMs are heterogeneous and they tend not to respond to other targeted mutations. There are high rates of, of BRAF mutation in high-grade gliomas, but to the best of my knowledge, anti-BRAF agents don't tend to have too much efficacy in that area. So will this phenomenon of antigen escape where the cancer expresses the antigens but doesn't respond to the treatment like it should, will the vaccine be able to overcome that phenomenon? Only time and further studies will tell. But a very interesting concept, Josh. I love interesting concepts because what that means is in five years' time when we're actually, you know, well-established in our clinical careers, there might be something we can actually do. Yeah. And we can tell all of the young whippersnappers of a dark time before UCP vax and before <laughs> Gitter agonists. It was truly, truly at the dark days of medicine. It's like the barbarians. The, it's like all of the oncologists who are around in the pre-immunotherapy region and they say, all we had to treat melanoma was interferon and it didn't work. That's it. And it's not that long ago since immunotherapy was well, it's still pretty new. That's the irony. Yeah, exactly. And this is why we love oncology, because every single year there are new avenues of, uh, of research. Our last study for this episode, I promise it will be quick, is actually not a study directed against primary CNS tumours. It's a study looking at pembrolizumab in brain metastases. Now, this is a tumour agnostic study, and you don't see too many of these presented at ASCO outside of the phase one setting. But the rationale behind this is that a lot of studies exclude patients, or most studies I will say, exclude patients with untreated or unstable brain metastases. It is a constant bane of people in uh, the trial sphere trying to recruit patients to trials. By the time they get to needing trials over standards of care, they frequently have developed brain metastases and then you need to treat them and then they progress and then their ECOG performance status drops and they don't get on. So it is a major area of need. The median survival is very 
wide ranging and I guess it depends on the subtype of tumor, but also the treatment options and the ability to penetrate the CNS. So median survival uh, reported by the presenter here ranges from three to 23 months. Previous literature from uh, 2022 to 2018 suggests that pembrolizumab and immune checkpoint inhibitors have good CNS penetrance. So this study was a phase two study of pembrolizumab in brain metastases. And as I mentioned, it was tumor agnostic. So there were two cohorts. Cohort A was patients with previously untreated CNS metastases. And there were a few caveats to this, which I think were really good. If patients were treatment naive, there had to be no treatments available that demonstrate an overall survival benefit in the first-line therapy. Specifically, and to illustrate the point, they excluded patients with HER2-positive advanced breast cancer, small-cell lung cancer, and non-small-cell lung cancer with targetable mutations. So if you had these types of tumours, you were filtered into cohort B, where you had had previous treatments, but you had progressive brain metastases. The primary endpoint was the CNS benefit rate, and that is the rate of complete response, uh, partial response, or stable disease. The secondary endpoints were CNS progression-free survival, systemic progression-free survival, overall response rate, and safety. Exploratory endpoints were correlation of response with biomarkers, which is ongoing, duration of response, the first site of progression, and patient-reported outcomes. So there were 58 patients enrolled in total. Cohort A had 10 and cohort B had the lion's share at 48. The tumor diagnosis were majority of patients had breast cancer, 35 out of the total 58. There were two melanomas, seven non-small cells, two small cells, two primary pituitaries, and uh, other tumors were sort of clumped together. They included esophageal, renal cell cancer, ACC sarcoma, and adenocarcinoma of unknown primary. Eight patients in cohort A, so 80%, and 32 patients in cohort B had extracranial metastatic disease, so non-CNS-only disease. Eight out of 42 patients who, who were appropriate had prior systemic therapy. Median number of previous therapies was three, but interestingly, Josh, as a side point, the range of previous number of therapies ranged from one to 16. I'm guessing that was one of the breast cancer patients because I don't even know 16 therapies for most of these treatments. They're probably re-challenging. Re-challenging and then a couple of other trials. and Yeah, yeah. must be trial after trial after trial. Yeah, exactly. So in terms of results, a little under half of patients had an intracranial benefit, 24 out of 57. Five out of 57 had a complete or partial response, and the overall intracranial benefit rate was 42%. There was a third of the patients in cohort A and 21 out of 48 patients, 44% in cohort B. 45% had an extracranial benefit and a time to extracranial PD on average was four and a half months. So you are buying these patients time. It's not a lot, but you are buying them time. In terms of the overall survival, cohort A was 6.5 months. Again, those are the patients who had upfront brain metastases, probably a poor prognostic marker. Cohort B had overall survival of 8.1 months. Interestingly, and remember, we're dealing with small numbers yet again, but seven patients had an overall survival of greater than two years. And living for greater than two years with any type of cancer would have been unconscionable. That's a word. I'm sure that's a word. A number of years ago. So five patients had breast cancer, one patient had melanoma, and one patient had sarcoma. These are patients with brain metastases living for greater than two years. 
The progression free survival in terms of intracranial disease was a little over one and a half months and extracranial was four and a half months. So again, we're dealing with a poor prognostic group, but it is interesting that there is an potential some evidence of response regardless of sort of what tumour you have. And in the discussion, the author did say that they were surprised that with the breast cancer patients, they weren't all triple negative breast cancer patients where pembrolizumab has evidence for efficacy. There were some hormone positives and HER2 positives. So it is interesting that pembrolizumab seems to have, at least in a small subset of patients, some efficacy in intracranial disease. So in terms of the conclusion, wrapping this one up, Pembrolizumab has promising intracranial activity, and obviously it's probably a bit of selection bias because breast cancer patients were the majority of the patients enrolled, but 37% of breast patients had a clinical benefit. The hypothesis for this were different immunogenicity and reduced immunosuppression or changes to the immune microenvironment in the central nervous system as opposed to the extracranial space. However, the efficacy of treatment and the survival statistics remain unacceptably short, so we still need more investigations and more information on this area. And the area of interest is the biomarker investigations. We talked in a previous episode about having some markers to dictate treatment. It'll be interesting to see if this study turns up any relevant biomarkers to determine whether a patient with intracranial metastases would benefit from checkpoint inhibition, whether it's TMB or specific mutations. It will be very interesting to see those results. A bright future for for pembrolizumab indeed. Absolutely. Pembrolizumab is doing very well for itself. And also the patients. You know, you're getting overall intracranial benefit of 42% is... Not the best, but it's so much better than traditional therapies. Yeah, and you'd argue given the dearth of available treatments currently, um, these are frequently patients who have gone through everything. And we know that repeated dosing of radiotherapy for intracranial metastases is the very definition of the law of diminishing returns. So if you have something else for these patients, then that is never a bad thing. Never a bad thing. Well, thank you again for joining us for another ASCO special. We have more in store for you later this week, so can't wait to speak to you then. Can't wait. See ya. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com.